0: This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Today I'm going to talk about something that's been on my mind in my thoughts for oh several months now at least, It's a topic that I've thought about over the years, and I decided that it's time to just take a closer look at it. I'm going to talk about Abram, Abraham, and his faith, what we see in the Old Testament about his faith being credited to him as righteousness, and then the references in the New Testament writings about that very thing. But before I get into that, a couple of things I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to send me a note... Have a question, have an idea for a topic I can cover, please feel free to write to me at ancientpaths at cantrell.cc. I'll be glad to communicate with you. I have a list going on and I promise I'll get to the ones that I've mentioned. I have a few episodes kind of mapped out already. As I mentioned in my last episode, which was a while ago now, our lives are in a little bit of turmoil, uh, being uprooted and living not in Russia at the moment and moving around according to the Lord's will, praying intensely to discern the will of God as we look for the life of obedience that he's called us to. And I'd like to share something that was sent to me by a friend a little while ago regarding this uprooting. Oh, by the way, I don't know if you can hear, but we've got some birdsong outside and uh, I wish I could find a place here in Romania that is really quiet, but I can't. (laughs) We're out in the countryside here in Danish, is the name of the village, and the birds are singing, and occasionally we may hear a rooster or a dog in the background. But such is life, and we're thankful for it. So I was writing with some friends of mine about our situation where we have left our home in Russia and are now in Romania, and we're praying about where we go next. And uh, the pressures that are faced by refugees are intense and very interesting, and things that we haven't faced before, but that's true of millions of people right now. And a very good friend of mine, an elder at a church, a group of people that I highly respect, and he has been a a mentor in many ways to me over the years, he wrote this, and I want to read it and share it with you. Almost everybody listening to me right now is not going through what I'm going through, but Surely, everyone listening to me has gone through times where life is shaken, and God allows our lives to be shaken and turned upside down and inside out, and we don't know what's coming next, and all of the things that we thought we could depend on that were stable and secure are no longer stable and secure, and so I just want to read to you something that was shared with me, uh, and hope that it'll encourage you, or if not you If you're not in this spot right now, maybe you can use it to encourage somebody else that you're going to have a conversation with pretty soon. So this is what my friend wrote. I'll read all of it and have a few comments afterwards. So here's what he said. I've never experienced anything like that, but we have had our uprootings over the years. And while painful to one degree or another, the Lord always works his good purpose through them in bringing us closer to him and purifying us as vessels for his purpose. All who truly serve him are on a continual exodus, going outside the camp, because here we have no continuing city, and we long for the heavenly. Therefore God is not ashamed to call us his own. But again, I do not say that to minimize the pain, but to the contrary. But it must be a very real uprooting that cuts deeply to work a very real change in us, And that is our consolation and encouragement in accordance with Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28, which is familiar, I think, to most of my listeners. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I'll read the following verses too, because what is that purpose of God that we've been called to? Verse 29, For those God foreknew, he also destined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. That's God's purpose. And as I've spoken about pretty often in Hebrews chapter 12, the lesson that we learn, the encouraging word that we learn, is that God uses these intense difficulties in our lives to shape us and discipline us and form us so that we can share in his holiness. We can be more and more like Jesus. If we will allow those hardships to do their work in our hearts, That's the key. If we'll abide, there is a really good harvest of righteousness and peace if we'll allow ourselves to be trained by the difficulties that he allows us to go through. There are a couple of things in what my friend wrote that I really like. All who truly serve him are on a continual exodus. Amen. Because here we don't have a home and we long for a heavenly home. And my friend also said that it must be a very real uprooting that cuts deeply to work a very real change in us. Amen. If we want to walk with the Lord, and there's an if there, if we choose to be disciples, then there will be times of very real uprootings and deep cuts to the roots that we have in this world. Because this is not our world, and this world is not the kingdom of God. We can be in this world, but not of this world. And He'll cut those roots, and it'll hurt, and it'll be a deep work. But we are consoled, and we're encouraged, because God's promise is that through all of these things, He'll work for good, if we love Him, and if we're willing to walk in accordance with His purposes. Good. Amen. So, let's always keep our eyes on the Lord and his truth. Let's look beyond the facts that are before us to the truth of God and trust that he is doing his eternal work in it all. Okay, now I'd like to turn to this discussion about Abraham and faith. And I'm going to read a lot of scripture today because we need to hear what God says and not what we think he says. And certainly don't want to talk about what we think about what he says. (laughs) And sometimes we'll even have sermons or teachings or books that talk about what we think he ought to say. But we should look at the scripture and see what he really says. And as I've done this study, it's given me a much deeper sense of thanksgiving, of gratitude, to see from God's perspective both his righteousness and his grace his love, and his purity. And and I'm just very, very thankful that he is as he is. He's a loving God. He's a loving Father. And this stands against all other religions in the world. He is a loving Father, and he makes a way for us to walk with him in spite of our failings and sins. We're going to look at Abram and faith and the law and then we'll look at the New Testament writings to see how it is that we tie all these things together. So first we'll start with Abram. and remember his name was Abram, and God changed his name. We'll talk about that in a second. Starting in Genesis 15 verse 1, after this the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O Sovereign Lord, what can you give me, since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body. He will be your heir. And he took him outside, and he said, Look up at the heavens, and count the stars, if indeed you can count them, And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. I'll make one point here. In the Old Testament translations, you'll often see the word Lord in all capital letters. And that's actually a substitution for the word uh, Yahweh or Jehovah. That's the name of God. That's what he calls himself. I am who I am. And in order to avoid misstating the name of God or even saying it, they'll substitute the word Lord. But this is a personal God speaking with Abram. Jehovah, Yahweh is speaking with Abram. And in verse six, we see that Abram believed in Yahweh and Yahweh credited that faith to Abram as righteousness. Now, I want to point out that Abram did not put his faith in a doctrine or a belief system. He put his faith in the living God. And we read in Romans chapter 4 that this is the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that were not as though they were. And that Abram was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised And this is why this faith was credited as righteousness. God doesn't call us to put our faith in a belief system or a religious set of activities or rites. He doesn't call us to put our faith in particular doctrines. He calls us and he loves it when we put our faith in him, the living God, who has the ability to do what he promises. So this is an encouragement to me and for all of us, that God is not looking for a people who will put their faith in acting the right way, our ability to act correctly, or put our faith in a certain belief system or a doctrine. He's calling us to put our faith in him, in his personality, in his strength, in his promises. Amen. And God makes this promise to Abram in chapter 15, and in chapter 17 God gives Abram instructions about circumcision, which is the outward sign of this promise of this covenant. So I want to point out that circumcision doesn't come first. It's a sign of this covenant where God has made a promise and God is going to fulfill that promise. And Abram believes him and puts his faith in the living God. And, of course, in the New Testament, we understand that this circumcision of the flesh under this Abrahamic covenant, under the New Covenant, becomes a circumcision of the heart, internal, cutting away this worthless flesh so that we can be the children of the promise. So in chapter 17, we read, When Abram was 99 years old, Jehovah appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you, and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. And then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. And this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So here God renames Abram and gives him the name Abraham. Abraham. And why is that? Well, the answer is actually in the meaning of those names. In Hebrew, the name Abram, Abram, means exalted father. But the name Abraham, however, contains another root word, which roughly means multitude. So Abraham is translated then as meaning father of a multitude. So he went from being exalted father to being the father of a multitude. Well, isn't that something? There's a promise in the change of name. And God made that name change. Abram didn't choose it. God chose it for him before any of this had been worked out in this world, in the flesh, in reality, we could say. Though when God speaks something, it is real. It's real in a way that even material things on this earth are not real. Because his word is eternal. By changing his name, the Lord not only confirmed that he would fully carry out the promise that he'd made to Abram, he as well made Abraham the father of faith for all the saints. From Abraham, a multitude did come, and that is the people that live by faith. Now, give a quick aside, I've known people who have changed their names when they came to faith. They wanted to fully put that old self behind and embrace the new person that God was creating. I have a friend named Victor, and you know I still don't know his birth name. (laughs) When he became a Christian... Uh, I think he came out of a life of drug addiction and violence in Russia, and he changed his name. He said, call me Victor now, because he's a victor in the Lord. God has given him victory. And there were several other people that later I found out, oh, that's not their birth name. That's just the name they took when they became believers. I think it's beautiful and very good. So we see here with Abram, That faith is credited as righteousness. And yet, the law says that all are guilty and that there is a price for sin. This was revealed later, of course, after the days of Abraham. I was reading through Leviticus chapters 4 and 5, and something really stood out to me this time through. In chapter 4, the Lord said to Moses, this is verse 1, And verse 2, say to the Israelites, when anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, and verse 13, if the whole Israelite community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though the community is unaware of the matter, they are guilty. Verse 22 When a leader sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the commands of the Lord his God, he is guilty. Verse 27. If a member of the community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, he is guilty. Chapter 5, verse 2. Or if a person touches anything ceremonially unclean, whether the carcass of unclean animals or of unclean livestock or of unclean creatures that move along the ground, Even though he is unaware of it, he has become unclean and is guilty. Chapter 5, verse 17. If a person sins and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though he does not know it, he is guilty and will be held responsible. He is bring to the priest as a guilt offering a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value. In this way, the priest will make atonement for him for the wrong that he has committed unintentionally, and he will be forgiven. It is a guilt offering, and he has been guilty of wrongdoing against Jehovah. Well, look at that. The thing that stood out to me, and I've highlighted it with the way that I read it, is all of these sins are unintentional. It's something that a person does, and they're not even aware that it goes against God's laws. And we may think that doesn't seem very fair. If I'm not aware of it, being against God's will, how can I be guilty of it? But that's not the way God sees these things. He demands absolute perfection, absolute purity, because he is absolutely holy, absolutely pure. And here we see in Leviticus that lots of people may break the law and not even know it, and they're guilty. That's what the word says. They are actually guilty. I've said they are, but you know, we are actually guilty. Any time that we break one of God's rules or do something that is not in accordance with his will, and anything that is not of faith is sin, then we are guilty before him, even if we do it unintentionally. Even if we don't know it, we're responsible before God. And here in chapter 5, verse 17 and following, we see that God said, well, you need to bring a guilt offering, a ram, to make atonement for the wrong that was committed unintentionally. And he promises he will be forgiven. Well, now's a good time to talk about atonement. And I've heard it said quite a bit, and I actually used to think this way as well, just because I was taught this way, that within the word atonement are the words at one meant. That atonement is being at one with God, which is true, but uh, perhaps a better word for atonement or understanding of atonement is recompense. That atonement is a price that's paid, and there's a recompense, there's a price for sin, and this making of a guilt offering restores that right relationship. But it's not just at one meant. There's a cost to sin, and as I've said before, God does not forgive sin unless it's been paid for. I was recently speaking on the covenants at a Romanian church, and uh, the pastor was interpreting for me into Romanian, and I played this little word game here. I said, God does not forgive sin, and looked at him, and he had this panicked look in his eyes, (laughs) like, did Mike really say that, and should I translate that? And so I had to say, go ahead, I've got more to say. God does not forgive sin unless it has been paid for. Under the Mosaic law, human beings made recompense for their sins. They paid a price constantly, regularly, all the time, even for the guilt of actions that they did not know offended God. And this is the old covenant. This is the Mosaic law. Until this time, no one on earth knew how holy and righteous the creator is. And the law, the Mosaic law, shows us how crooked we are by showing how straight Jehovah is. This is the law. And God gave it, we're told, so that it would show us our need and drive us to Jesus, show us our need for a Messiah and a Savior, some perfect sacrifice that could be made forever, once for all. Now we'll come to the new covenant, and I've spoken about this many times. But perhaps there are listeners who haven't listened to my extended teaching on the covenants. It's always good to be reminded about this. So I'll read Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares Jehovah. So obviously he's referring here to when Israel came out of Egypt at the base of Mount Sinai, he gave the Mosaic law, and very quickly they broke that law. And remember, 3,000 were killed because of their disobedience, their immediate disobedience to that Mosaic law. They said, we're going to do it, and then they didn't do it. Starting in verse 33, God talks about the covenant that is coming. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares Jehovah. I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor, or a man his brother, saying, No, Jehovah, because they'll all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. Amen. That's the new covenant. And that is very different from the Mosaic law. In Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 22, we read, Therefore say to the house of Israel, This is what the sovereign Jehovah says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am Jehovah, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you to move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Amen. Man, that is great. As a young believer, one of the things that stood out to me from this passage is when the Lord says, it's not for your sake that I'm going to do these things, but it's for the sake of my holy name. I think that's a lesson that needs to be heard a lot today in Western cultures, because there's so much about self-love, self-esteem, self-concern, self-care, all of these things about self. And we can tend to think, oh, God loves us so much that he's going to give me his spirit. And it's interesting. He says, it's not for your sake that I'm doing it. It's for the sake of my name that I'm doing it. You've profaned my name. People are watching the people of God, and and you're not honoring me, and so I'm going to have to do something in your heart that will show the nations that I really am holy, that I am holy. And I've thought about this. Why would God do this this way? And I understand why, I think, at least in part, because people, human beings, are not saved from sin by putting their faith in Mike Cantrell, or his ability to live a good life. They're saved by putting their faith in God, in Jehovah, in Jesus. People are saved by him in his name. And he will do what he must do to show himself holy. And he will do that through jars of clay. Amen. It's not for our sake that he does it. It's for the sake of his name. We've got to die to ourselves. We have to, Jesus says, take up our cross deny ourselves, follow him. And it's for the sake of his name that he'll do these things because he really desires everyone to be saved, everyone to be set free from the bondage of sin and the fear of death. Amen. That's what he wants. Well, all through the beginnings of the early church, there was this conflict between the law and living by faith. Much of the book of Galatians, and Hebrews, and Romans, and certainly in the book of Acts, we see this very pointedly. And in Acts chapter 15, we read, Some men came down from Judea to Antioch, and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Well, there's the question right there. Does a Gentile have to become a Jew under the Mosaic law in order to be a follower of the Messiah, Jesus? There's this conflict between living by faith, the faith of Abram, and living under the law, the Mosaic law. There's a big conflict. And here in Romania, recently I've had conversations about what sounds to my ears like something that probably wouldn't exist in America, legalistic Pentecostals. There are Pentecostal churches who do believe in the gifts of the Spirit, and yet they become very legalistic and based on law and living by the law. And of course, there are Seventh-day Adventists who, at least in this area, some have said to local congregations here, you are not a true Christian because you do not keep a Saturday Sabbath. They're putting the New Testament believers underneath the law. And that was a big issue. And of course, in Acts chapter 15, there's a decision that's made. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. The decision of the early church and the message that needs to be shared today in churches all over the globe, Christians, new covenant Christians, are not under that Mosaic law. It's done, it's obsolete, it's been fulfilled, its role has been accomplished, but we are no longer under it. So how do we resolve this tension between living by faith and living by the law? Well, we have to come back to Abram. This is the resolution. And in Romans chapter 3, the tail end of chapter 3 and going into chapter 4, we read, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law, Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Well, not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about but not before God, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. However, the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, when he says, this is in verse 7, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord never counts against him. Verse 9. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised, or is it for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Well, when David speaks about the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness, apart from our works, He refers to that new covenant promise. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven. Remember, that's a big part of the new covenant. God says, I will remember their sins no more. God's amazing. He can control his memory in a way that we cannot right now. I've heard it said that uh, we have a memory and God has a forgettery (laughs) that he can control his memory and he can choose to forget things and just remember them no more. Amen. That is the new covenant. Under the Mosaic law, there is a constant sacrifice for sin. Those sins are remembered and they're counted and watched, even the ones we don't know that we're committing. But under the new covenant, when we have faith in the Messiah, God promises to put his spirit in us and he'll remember those sins no more. Amen. That's really beautiful. In verses 20 through 24, here in Romans chapter 4, we read, And yet Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding this promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith, and he gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. And this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. This is what the word of God says. Those words were not for Abram alone. They're for us, those of us, we Gentiles and Jewish believers who put our faith in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. Amen. Well, I want to spend a little bit of time now in the book of Galatians because this really addresses the issue quite clearly. And it shows us how this was a very big issue in the early church. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Now, as I go into the next section, I want you to listen for the contrasts between observing the law and faith and the contrast between human effort and living by the Spirit. Verse 2. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it was for nothing? Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law? or because you believe what you heard. And now Paul again says, let's consider Abraham. Verse 6, consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. He said, all nations will be blessed through you. Amen. I want to go back just a little bit and look at these contrasts that Paul is making. There are two sides here, two attitudes that are in conflict with one another. Observing the law or believing. Those two things are in contrast with one another. Living by the Spirit or trying to attain this goal of righteousness by human effort. Those two things are in contrast with each other. Observing the law and belief. And this Word here is that those who believe, those who live by faith, are the children of Abraham. As far as I know, I'm not related by blood to Abraham. I'm not a Jew. I'm not a Hebrew. But I am grafted into that family because I live by faith. So now we move into the next section here of Galatians chapter 3. And let's notice the contrasts, a different set of contrasts, between being blessed and cursed. Paul writes in verse 9, So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, because it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. I want to stop right there because Paul is qu- quoting scripture and I guess in my past I used to think, well surely it doesn't really mean we have to do everything written in the book of the law. But here in Deuteronomy chapter 27, it says, Cursed is the man who does not uphold the works of the law by carrying them out. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything. In other places, God says, if you don't keep the law perfectly, then you are cursed. If you keep it perfectly, then you'll be blessed in many ways. But if you don't keep everything every single law, then you'll be cursed. That's God's level of perfection, his expectation of perfection. Amen. That's a big deal. Those who have faith are blessed, along with Abraham, who is the man of faith. But everybody who relies on observing the law to please God or to find righteousness, they're under a curse because no one keeps the law perfectly because, as we've seen, There are times when we break the law and we don't even know it. It's unintentional. We're unaware, but we're still guilty. That's why in John chapter 3, it very clearly says that everyone is heading to destruction and Jesus came to save. He didn't come to condemn. He came to save because everyone is already condemned. Verse 11, clearly no one is justified before God by the law because here Paul quotes The righteous will live by faith. That's in Habakkuk chapter 2. Continuing in verse 12, the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, here's a quote, the man who does these things will live by them. That's Leviticus chapter 18. So you see there's a difference between faith and doing the law, keeping the law. If you keep the law, that's in contrast to faith. Verse 13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on the tree. That's Deuteronomy chapter 21. Verse 14 He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. That is the Word of God. By faith we can receive the promise of the indwelling spirit, that new covenant promise, not by human labor. It is a gift. The spirit is a gift. It's not wages. It's not a salary. The wages of sin is death. When we sin, we get paid what we deserve, and that payment is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Amen. We can receive that gift of life, the indwelling spirit, by faith. Verse 15. Brothers, let me make an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been fully established, so it is in this case. And I've said it before, when somebody writes their last will and testament before they die, it's a covenant. The word testament and covenant mean the same thing. And you can't change a person's testament or covenant when they die. It's not something that you can negotiate or change the terms of. They set the covenant. And this is true here, Paul is saying. We understand it also. Okay, verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, into his seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. And what I mean is this, Paul says. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and does not do away with that promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Amen. Here we see the contrast again. The promise is made to Abraham. His faith is credited as righteousness The law is introduced over 400 years later, but it doesn't set aside that previous covenant. And this inheritance of what God is going to give his people, the promised Abraham, does not depend on the law. It depends on a promise. So this brings up a question, and Paul answers it. What then was the purpose of the law? This is in verse 19. The law was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Well, absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would have certainly come by the law. But the Scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Verse 23 Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And now that faith is come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Well, this is why I said earlier that I was going to read the scripture and see what God says about it instead of what I think about what he said about it or instead of what I think he ought to have said about it. The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And now that that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. The Mosaic law That legalistic system was temporary. It was for a time, and it was put in place to lead us to the Messiah, to show us our need for a Messiah. Now, anyone who's thought about this a little bit knows that there is something that appears to be a contradiction when James brings up this very topic. So I want to turn to James chapter 2 here, see what James has to say about it. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith, but he has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Well, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, well, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Well, someone might say, You have faith, I have deeds. Well, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I actually do. You believe that there's one God? Well, good. Even demons believe that, and they shudder. (laughs) That's a really good argument. You say, well, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, you know what? Demons would believe that. Satan knows that, but he doesn't act in accordance with it. He doesn't show the fruit of that faith, of that true faith. Verse twenty. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not just by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in another direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Well, it's not very hard to reconcile these two things that Paul has said and that James is saying here. The image that Jesus gives is of a branch that abides in a vine, that is connected to a vine. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me, I'll abide in you. Anyone who does not abide in me, any branch that doesn't abide in the vine is cut off, and it withers and dies. Faith, new covenant faith, is a living faith. Faith comes first. Abraham believed God, that was credited to him as righteousness, And that faith saw an outworking in what Abraham did. He actually acted in obedience, and that's something that demons don't do. They do not act in obedience, even though they believe that God is one, that he is the true God. Yeah, demons believe that, but they they shudder with fear because they're not abiding in that offer of faith and love. Amen. The body without the spirit is dead, and faith without deeds is dead. I've said it many times, in Hebrew and in Greek, the word for faith and the word for faithfulness are the same word. There's no distinction between having faith and being faithful. So in the kingdom, there's a moment of faith, choosing, a turning, and entering into the kingdom, and then there's an abiding in that faith and being faithful over time. And this is that promise. God's plan has always been for people to have a living relationship with him, and the key word here is living. It is a flow of life. And for those who do have this living relationship with God, their faith is credited as righteousness. Well, and it's good to define what righteousness is, really. It means right relationships, right actions, and having a right relationship between God and man. And so our faith is credited as righteousness, Doesn't mean that we actually are righteous fully, but God gives us a credit. It's a banking term. He gives us a gift. And God is perfectly pure and holy. And because of that, He will not allow imperfections to persist. He is promising to purify everything. And as I've said, God doesn't forgive sin unless it's been paid for. Sin has a cost, a very high cost. And that cost must be paid. And even when we're unaware of our sin, we're guilty. And the beauty of it is that the Messiah came to pay that price for sin once for all. He also came to break the power of death and free people from their fear of death. And he also came to institute this new covenant that was foretold by the prophets, this new covenant of the indwelling Spirit of God, this mystery that is now revealed, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen. Now, all of those who have living faith in the living God have a faith that is credited as righteousness, and God sends his spirit so that we will be perfected, so that we will have both the desire and the ability to do his will. All children of Abraham are headed towards perfection. God is working that out in his people, if we'll abide in him, if our faith is living and not dead. Well, my friends, I hope that this has been an encouragement to you. It opens my heart up wide in thanksgiving to realize that He has made a way for us to live by faith and not by our own human effort. That He promises that He will give us both the desire and the ability to do the things that He calls us to. Amen. That is beautiful. And I pray that you will walk in that reality that you won't fall back like the Galatians did into thinking that they could earn God's favor by doing things according to the law instead of believing him and living by the spirit so until next time i pray that you will walk in these ancient pathways because his ways are really good and they always lead to rest for the soul amen said to his disciples now that you know these things you will be blessed if you do them thank you for listening and god bless you all